Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Eola Hills with Steve Anderson, the winemaker, Tom Huggins, founder and general manager. It's August 1st, 2017, and we're at the Legacy Estate Vineyard. And we'll start with a question for both of you. Oh, Tom first, uh, which is why wine? Why wine? Why did I, why did I uh, get into this business? Why did you get into this business? <laughs> Well, it's kind of a long story. I, uh, I used to be an insurance agent 30, 30 some odd years ago, and my specialty in insurance was insuring farms, and I kind of gra- uh, uh, gravitated towards insuring vineyards and wineries. So I insured, uh, I insured most of the vineyards and wineries in the state at the time. There was only 30 some. And uh, the one thing I noticed that everybody that was in the business, they all seemed to have such a passion for it and uh, just a love for what they did. It was almost like a more of a way of life than it was a job. And I, I told a couple of the clients I had, a couple of the clients that put in at a lot of the vineyards and wineries around here, I said, you know, if you find some land that you think would good, that would go grow good grapes, I think I'd be interested myself. And they said, Tom, we're going out to look at a place this afternoon. Why don't you come along with us? And that's that vineyard you pass coming in here. That's Oak Grove Vineyard. So that was what 30, 32 years ago or something. Yeah. And so eventually I weaned myself out of the insurance business. But I, I probably stayed in the business for. 10 years after I started the uh, vineyard winery. V- vineyard. The winery didn't come along until about five years later, but um, that's how I started. Did you, ask you just a second, I'll ask you the same question, but did you, when you talk about the passion, did you feel the passion before you bought? Like, was it, was it once you oh, bought? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, w- when I was, when I was an insurance agent, I had a landscaping license, and so I was I was doing a lot of outdoor work. I loved landscaping, and I looked at you know the vineyard and especially Legacy here is just a giant landscaping project, you know. <laughs> um, so it's just been a way for me to get you know get out in the dirt, and and that, that's what I really loved. It, I, I originally wasn't planning on starting a winery, just growing grapes and selling grapes. But uh, we had trouble selling our grapes, you know, after after they, you know, after they uh, matured, and we had, you know, tons and tons of grapes. It was hard to sell them, and, and then we thought, well, how difficult could it be to make wine? So, and wine we can keep, you know, grape when they're ready, you gotta pick them. Sure. And sure. Uh, so they, there's a, a limited lifespan of grapes, but not really of wine. So that's that's why we started the winery about five years after, four, four years after we started the vineyard. Uh, what about you? How did you get into the wine industry? Serendipity. Uh, it was not my intention to originally make wine. I uh, started making wine when I was 13 with the neighbor lady's grapes, a five-gallon bucket, and a story of how her family uh, of European descent used to come together in the fall and, and make wine you know, for the family dinner table. And I was fascinated with that story, so I made wine at home. Uh, for my parents, <laughs> uh, really had no intention of making wine to drink myself. It was just a fascination of the project. So graduated high school and totally forgot about winemaking and uh, have a degree in horticulture from Oregon State. So my intention was to be a nurseryman. Uh, I wanted to you know, grow trees and shrubs and potted plants and sell fertilizers and bug sprays and things like that. And uh, Ended up was working in the grass seed industry and working in uh, the retail nursery when uh, I got a phone call from the winemaker at Eola Hills, uh, who remembered me when I came to visit doing some wine tasting, uh, who's also a, uh, an OSU graduate. Tom's an OSU graduate, so there's a lot of us beavers here. Uh, said, hey, our vineyard manager is leaving, and I remember that uh, you know you were uh, studying horticulture. Uh, would you care to interview for a vineyard manager position? So I met one of the shareholders uh, who uh, was working at OSU, interviewed with him. Uh, he liked me sufficiently enough that uh, he sent me over to the outgoing vineyard manager who was working at HP. So I met at the lobby at HP, and I met Jim Huggins, Tom's uh, younger brother. 
uh, and he was sufficiently pleased with me, so they sent me up to visit with Tom, and I was hired. And uh, at the time, uh, my wife was uh, like 10 months, or not, couldn't be 10 months, but <laughs> she's eight months pregnant. I, was, I, I had one, I said it's attracting one. Yeah, it was a miracle birth. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, I really need like two weeks to get my affairs in order. My wife is, you know, going to have a baby very soon. I need to move the mother-in-law in the house. And so there was this two-week pause between getting hired and when I was starting. And this was in October, so it was harvest. So Jim was going to train me through harvest, and, uh, and then he was going to move on back to HP as a full-time permanent job and give up the weekend uh, vineyard management. Well, I showed up two weeks later, and I was informed that there was no job for me. Uh, Jim and, and Tom had decided that uh, Jim really didn't want to give up the farming, and so he was to stay on, and they didn't need me. And the winemaker came into the office immediately as I was about ready to leave and asked if, uh, if I really needed a job, uh, I could come back and work the night shift for harvest as a cellar rat. So that's how I got into winemaking. Uh, three weeks later, I was approached by the, the winemaker and asked if I would be his assistant winemaker. So I had knowledge on how not to make wine in five-gallon buckets because it's really hard to make a good bucket of wine. Uh, so I knew everything not to do. And then with my horticulture, science background, small fruit physiology, my mechanical abilities that I had realized uh, during my military experience, uh, you know, I was able to fix things in the middle of the night with you know springs from like underneath uh, Tom's van seat. You know, we needed a spring for the uh, the the crusher to keep working, and the only spring I could find was underneath the seat of the the van that he had in the office, and repaired the crusher in the middle of the night and kept going. So uh, I was pretty handy, and I've been here ever since. That's a pretty great origin story. I like that. That's nice. He left for a while. He left to become a winemaker at another winery. I did get hired away for yeah. two harvests. And then our, the winemaker that hired him took a job up in Washington, a big winery up in Washington. And so I went back to Steve and coaxed Steve in. He said, come, come home. <laughs> that was like 20-some years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of the kind of that the kismet of finding the site. You just happened to be saying you wanted a site, and you happened to be going and checking it out. So when you saw it, what did you think? What what, what was well, about it? Well, you know, it, a lot of it was I, I was really impressed with this farmer that that was selling the property. Mm -hmm. His name was Clarence Primus, and he was just he was a probably a third generation farmer that had his dad before him and his grandfather before him, and he was probably 70 years old. <laughs> So it'd been in his family for a long time. Maybe he wasn't that old at the time. But um, I really liked him, and he seemed like a real straight shooter, and he really he liked his land, but he was consolidating because he was getting older, and, and, he, and none of his kids wanted wanted to follow him in the farm. And so he, and uh, one of the things that stuck out, he said, you'll, what you'll discover with this land, he said, we're in a shadow uh, uh, of the highest point of the coast range. We're in kind of a shadow uh, in this area. This area, this whole area is kind of in a shadow of, of, the, of, a, of a high ridge in the coast range. And it kind of shunts weather to either side. And he said, we get about 10 inches less rainfall per year than Salem gets. And I said, you're kidding me. It's only 10 miles away. And he said, yeah, he said, you'll, you'll see. And it's true. I mean, the, you can see the the storms kind of part. Uh, I mean, we get rain here, but not like uh, 10 miles to the north or 10 miles to the south of us. You know, so it's uh, it was, it's a it's a it's a nice piece of land. It had really great soils and uh, good good microclimate. And, and as far as this property, um, you know, fell in love with this just when I saw the for sale sign go up on it because it's only like a half a mile from the original vineyard. Mm. This is, and I just saw for sale sign. It was a big uh, timber company had it. And it looked just like all the property looked just like that over there. And uh, they, you know, when we got it, it was what do we have? 400 piles of stumps. It was covered in stumps. Yeah. A lot of stumps. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we we chipped all the. We had a chipper come in, chipped the stumps. So a lot of them we, a lot of them we shoved into this canyon that you see right behind us. Well, it's not a canyon anymore, but it used to be a canyon through here. And we shoved a lot of the stumps into there and then put 10 feet of topsoil, a lot of it that we got from this lake and from other points of the property. So we buried it 10 feet of topsoil and then ran the, the stream that runs year-round, ran it underneath the vineyard, 
and then just planted the grapes right over the top of it. Basically so. created seven acres of plantable land because with that, that gully there, there's would have had to cut the vineyard short for the headland for the tractor to turn around, but now we just farm all the way across it. So instead yeah. of three headlands, there's only one, and we wouldn't have had access to get to the other side because it would have been too steep. Yeah. So by filling in that gully with some of the, the debris left over from the, the logging operation and taking soil from cutting the road that goes around, we created seven acres of plantable land. So It's all Pinot Noir now. <laughs> So you mentioned that you had done insurance for most of, the, of the, the very few wineries and vineyards around, and so I'm curious, when you chose the site, there, there, you didn't have many neighbors. How did you go about sort of learning the trade? Well, the, the guys that I bought, that, that the, the guys that, that took me out to show me the vineyard, uh, their name is uh, Ron Seeley and Vic Winquist, and they were a vineyard development company. And they were my clients. They were guys that I insured, and so I, I got to know them real well. In fact, that, that's why I insured a lot of these properties, is because they would develop the property, and they'd refer the people to me for insurance. And so they, they became, they were, had kind of become friends. And what we did is, uh, I, I mean, I had enough money to make the down payment uh, on, the, on the vineyard, but that's it. I didn't have enough money to buy grapes or wire or trellis or anything. And so I sold shares to my uh, bunch of fraternity brothers and my, my own brothers and sisters, my mom and dad. And then and I also uh, created a share, we created a share for those guys, Ron and Vic, to give us, uh, to consult with us. And that was their, that was what they put in. They didn't put any money in, they just put their expertise in. And then after about, what, a year? I'm not sure, maybe a year, we decided that, hey, we don't need them anymore. and so. We decided uh, just to do it ourselves, yeah. And so we bought them out. They're not in. They're not involved anymore. I don't even know where they are. I know. I know one of them passed away, but I'm not sure what the other one's doing. But anyway, that's how. That's how I learned to be here. But a lot of it's just on the job training. My brother and I, Jim and I, and a couple other people, we we pounded all the stakes by hand in the other vineyard. We we had a crew. Crew did it on this vineyard. <laughs> I'm getting too old for that now. But I mean, we did uh, learn by doing, yeah, all of us. Same with Steve, you know, I mean, he didn't start out, I mean, he made wine in the, his basement when he was a kid, but it was not like making wine at a, at a 100,000 case winery. He's, he's learned a lot just from doing it, so. Yeah, tell me about that, Steve. How's it been? And you mentioned before we started talking on camera about all the different kind of soil types and elevations. So how has it been, tell us like the learning curve for you. Well, I had a great mentor and the previous winemaker that, you know, gave me a lot of leeway to experiment and, you know, I asked a lot of questions, you know, I'm quite inquisitive and, and I learned quickly, so that, that was quite beneficial that, that first couple of years. And as I said, I, I learned how not to make wine, you know, like, you know, you have to punch down and mix up the, the red grapes to get the color out of it. Well, the recipe was just put grapes in a bucket and cover it with a plastic bag and wait six weeks. So, uh, pretty hands-off. <laughs> I did not make the, the best wine. And then, you know, uh, uh, controlling spoilage organisms. That wasn't in the recipe. So, it's much easier to make a 6,000-gallon, you know, stainless steel refrigerated tank with yeast and sulfites and, you know, filters and things like that. Uh, to, to make wine. So, as Tom said, it was a lot of on-the-job uh, training, and again, because I, I like to learn, and I'm always reading catalogs, and I'm reading, you know, abstracts and things like that. Uh, remember my soil science from my, my uh, undergrad. Uh, so, you know, knowing the soil types and how they affect, you know, and then uh, early on in the years, uh, in the, the, the late 90s, uh, or when I started in 1993, so I guess it was the early through the 90s, there used to be a, a, a winemaker group. We used to meet once a month. Uh, back when there was only, you know, 77 wineries, you could gather 30 or 40 winemakers somewhere in the Willamette Valley, and we would meet, and we'd uh, say, well, this month we're going to do Pinot Gris. So everyone would bring a bottle of Pinot Gris. It could be any vintage. It could be a, an experiment. It could be finished. And we'd brown bag it, and we'd all sit around and taste them. And, and then uh, the, the fun part came, so does anybody claim this wine, you know? And a couple people would raise their hands and, you know, it was none of them. Or maybe, you know, one person, oh, that's mine. It's, a, it's an experiment. And then we would talk about it, you know, well, when did you pick it? Uh, what was the bricks, the pH, the TA? What was special about it? Uh, 
you know, any problems they had, you know, and, or sometimes people would have a real problem wine and they brought it to get everyone's experience, you know, combined experience, you know, what did I do wrong, <laughs> you know. Uh, I always remember there was always the same winemaker every month. Didn't matter what the wine was, it always had hydrogen sulfide. And he always used priest de mousse yeast on everything. He loved priest de mousse yeast, which is known. It's in in the literature. Priest de mousse has a high propensity for producing hydrogen sulfide. He loved priest de mousse. And we ever you know, for like years. Change your yeast, change your yeast. Eventually he did. And then he stopped asking that question. What did I do wrong? Well, you know, so anyway, so that was uh, real helpful early in the year. Now that there's 700 wineries and 500 winemakers, you know, gathering a group of 40 of them is, is much more difficult. It used to be more close-knit than it is now. Everybody's kind of on their own now, it seems like. Yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit. I'll come back to that a little bit later because I have some questions about that. But. I'm curious um, what what you, you mentioned some of it. What were some of the other some of the other challenges in the beginning? What are the what were the unforeseen obstacles to getting a vineyard and then a winery off the ground? I think a lot of it was uh, in the early years was just the lack of um, um, the lack of uh, um, what I want to say. Oregon was not known. I mean, uh, it was it was just people were starting to grow grapes here and make wine here. But we weren't known. I mean, we went to California to try to sell our wines, and people down there say, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> you know, and uh, still was, say that. Yeah, they still <laughs> say that. No, it's it's not quite as bad as it used to be. But Oregon is 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 established itself now, and it took a long time before that happened. They had to win some major uh, competitions against uh, uh, you know world-renowned wineries, and some of the some of the pioneers did that, and then the people started taking Oregon more seriously, and so. So you know, most of the most of the wine now in Oregon is is exported. <laughs> you know, we're still our winery. Our our model is we sell most of our wine here in Oregon. And uh, but but most Oregon wine. I mean, if you look at all the wine that's produced in Oregon, most of it is exported. Out of state. Out of state. Yeah. yeah. And what about for you? Were there what about the job or what about the industry surprised you in terms of obstacle? For me, there hasn't been many obstacles uh, from pretty much the inception of uh, Eola Hills. We've been in a growth phase until this year. We've kind of plateaued uh, with this expansive planting that we're, we're sitting in and plus some of our other holdings. Uh, we're able to produce more wine than we've been able to sell historically. And while our sales have gone up, I mean, it's really easy to produce an extra 200 tons of Pinot Noir, but then to go from you know, two to four hundred tons production and then sell it in the very next year. And that's been our model. We've been able to turn that wine. So this year we're actually, you know, taking a little reduction. I, we're selling fruit, which is a, a new problem. So that's a challenge. Uh, uh, we've been able to pick our fruit, bring it to the winery, turn it over, process those bins, get them back on the truck, they go right to the vineyard. So now to sell fruit, I have to load those bins, haul them to another winery, if they're not able to turn the bins in a short order, then I have to leave the bins overnight, which leaves me short, which is going to be logistic. So that's a new logistic turn for me that uh, we're going to have to figure out if we're going to sell fruit in the future because you know, we've kept our inventory of picking bins tight. I mean, there's no reason to have 500 bins when you only need 100. But if you're going to sell fruit, you need those bins to leave them somewhere else until the fruit can be processed. So we're working that out. That's, that's a new new hurdle. And our vineyard manager, Jim, is retiring. So I'm taking on some of his responsibilities, his replacement He's vineyard really manager. Really retiring this time. Really retiring. <laughs> really retiring. Yeah, 23 <laughs> years later, later 24 years later, yeah, he's actually retiring. So, yeah. So what will that add to your, what, 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 what uh, responsibilities does that add to you? Uh, just more phone calls and uh, making sure that uh, the, the winery that's receiving the fruit is ready to process them and that we can have the the bins back. Uh, More hands-on with the vineyards. Sure. Not yeah. just ours, but other people that we buy from. You know, the, the other thing I, I, I mentioned that uh, just the recognition of Oregon has changed things. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, we sell a lot more wine now than we did when there was just 30 
of our competitors. Mm -hmm. Now there's 700 competitors, yet we sell more wine now, and it's because there's such a demand now for Oregon wine compared to back, uh, way back when. Um, the other thing, the other change I think that I've seen over the years is um, is the weather. The weather has gotten more consistent, warmer, and I don't know if it's global warming, but I mean, we used to have, you know, a couple of really great vintages every 10 years, and now we have uh, a, a good vintage almost every year. There's very few uh, vintages that aren't good, and it, it, it just seems like the fruit we're getting now and the and the harvest that we're having, the uh, the fruit that comes in is way more uh, consistent, riper, uh, less problems to deal with in the vineyard. It, it, that's my perception. Yeah. Better weather. Yeah. I don't know if you feel that way, but I... And, and well, it, even if it's not global warming, it's climate change. The climate is change, at least in the short term. Um, I had mentioned to you early off camera that uh, in coming up on my 24th harvest, so in the 23 that I've done, uh, last year was the first year that I was home for uh, Halloween with the kids. Because uh, normally we're, we're picking into the first week of November. I left for Europe for two weeks on October 12th uh, to, you know, just do Europe and scout a we trip. Because we were done. Everything was picked, uh, everything was in tank. The assistant winemaker, my cellar crew could take it from there. You know, I, w I wasn't needed to, uh, you know, make the decisions anymore and, and on the spot because everything was, was tucked away and doing its, doing its thing. And, and you go back to when we started, and I can, I remember this. Uh, we picked uh, one of our uh, one of our stockholders had a vineyard a little ways up the hill here, mm -hmm. and we picked his vineyard the morning of the Oregon Oregon State football game. <laughs> That's late November. We picked fruit from his vineyard on the morning of the Oregon Oregon State football game. I remember that, and we picked on Thanksgiving. And you know, I mean, you know, now it's really rare if we're picking in November. It's pretty much. And like I say, like Steve said, we practically got done in September last year. So, like a month earlier than it was 25, 30 years ago. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Not necessarily. <laughs> tell, me, tell me why. Uh, well, the I have a different perspective than Tom does. We'll, we'll be out and we're tasting the barrels of Pinot Noir and, and he's like, wow, this is really great. This is really good. And I'm, I'm looking at it more from the technical side. The alcohol is too high and the acid's too low. While it's not bad wine, you know, I'm, I'm critiquing it for what it is at the particular moment. So because the fruit came on so early, the sugars rose faster than the flavors did. And sugar is alcohol, not flavor. So I'm sure in many of these interviews you hear hang time, you know, the longer the fruit can hang. And that's why it's great in Oregon that it's a cool climate, or at least it used to be, uh, that the, it took longer for the sugars to develop. So it allowed the flavors to develop at the same time. So last year, our best site, uh, our Wolf Hill Vineyard 667 clone on RG rootstock uh, was some of the first fruit we picked in early September because the sugars were 27 bricks, which means my alcohols are going to be approaching 16, but there was no flavor. So if you go out and you taste those barrels, if you didn't know the history of the wine over the various vintages, you'd taste it today and go, wow, this is really great. But compared to the 15 and the 14 and the 13 and 11 and, and on and on back to 1998, it's really thin and the alcohol's too high and there's not enough acid. So I, as a winemaker, can make adjustments in the tank and the fermenter when we're going, but it's not the same as if it came off the vineyard in a pristine state and the wine made itself. Sure, sure. Interesting. So, so on that note, what what do you what is unique about Eola Hills wine? What do you what do you what is the unique quality of your wine, or what are you proudest of? That's a question for Steve. <laughs> as you say, that's a question for for Tom. Uh, uh, what's unique? I make I, it. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll give a quick answer. Yeah. You can give a more technical answer, but we like to make uh, we like to think of ourselves as making affordable wine for the masses. You know, I mean, we, uh, I know Steve is very capable uh, if, if we wanted to make a $100 bottle of wine and he could control that, what happened in the vineyard with that, with the grapes that went into that, we could do that. And we do some of that. We do make some wines like that. 
but for the most part, we're trying to make wines that are affordable for people to drink every day. In fact, that's our, our tagline on our bottle, Everyday Extraordinary. We're making wines that are very good quality and affordable that you can drink every day. And to do that, um, you know, you, it, you, you, know you, have to, you have to um, start that process in the vineyard. You know, where, where our, our first vineyard, Oak Grove, deeper soils, wants to produce more tonnage than, say, this vineyard. Mm -hmm. And this vineyard tends to produce uh, higher quality fruit than, than the oak, oak Grove naturally would produce because it's, it's, it's more lower, it's lower soil, a lower uh, elevation, deeper soils. And, um, yeah, but it but enables us to make that $10, $12 wine. <laughs> You know, whereas if if all of our vineyards were like this, we we have a very difficult time producing a wine like I mm -hmm. just described, uh, affordable, you know, for the everyday consumer. Anyway, so I don't know if this answers your question directly, but to tie into that, uh, Tom hit on a point that. Uh, because we're making the everyday extraordinary wine, so we have many vineyard sites, many different clones. So it's a mixture of, of the wines to make a, a good quality wine that is in the middle. So in a bad year, you know, we've got some high elevation sites, some low elevation sites, some deep sites. So whether it's warm or cold or just right, uh, our highs and lows tend to be, you know, less extreme. And that was especially true years ago when uh, we didn't have so many of our own acres. We were buying fruit from vineyards in the Umqua and the Applegate and the Columbia River Valley, some mm -hmm. Pinot Noir and some Chardonnay. And that really uh, took out the highs and the lows. So if it was cold and wet in the Willamette Valley, we always got really great fruit from the Umqua and the Applegate. Uh, and if it was cold or they had a frost in the Columbia Valley, you know, that usually meant the summer was going to be good in the Willamette Valley. And so again, we made a good quality, consistent product from year to year. And as our growth has, you know, in, in sales, we needed more fruit and we had uh, cash available. We invested in ourselves in, in land. And so that's this legacy estate is the result of that. In normal years, we, the Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, which is our two main wines there in a normal year, the quality is better in the Willamette Valley on those two varieties. But in, a, in an abnormal year, it's nice to be able to get fruit from other areas that maybe are a little warmer in our area. And then, of course, we make a lot of different varieties of wine, and a lot of varieties don't grow well in the Willamette Valley, but they grow really well in Applegate or Umpqua or Columbia, Walla Walla area, you know. And, and uh, you know, our, our philosophy is, is, to, is to start with the best grapes. You know, a lot of uh, wineries tout themselves as estate. You know, you hear that word all the time, estate. Well, I mean, you know, we could make wine from our estate here, but all the grapes are from here. And uh, you're pretty uh, reliant on the weather being good, the soils being right. I mean, everything has to be right. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And uh, and it's not always best for every variety. Maybe good for Pinot Noir, but maybe a good Pinot Noir year is a bad Chardonnay year at, at this spot. But whereas we get fruit, we, we like uh, Chardonnay from other areas. So we buy Chardonnay from from other places. And uh, it, it's it's a lot of it is a matter of where you get the fruit. Steve's a great winemaker. He can make good wine. As long as he's got good fruit, he can make really great wine. But you know, you can't, uh, you can't make great Syrah from Willamette Valley. I say it's always easy to make bad wine from good grapes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really easy. Uh, you know, making good wine consistently, you have to start with good grapes. And I, I mean, that's a universal truth there. Everyone will say that. You know, you got to have good grapes. It starts in the vineyard, and that's true. Having said that, though, I always feel like, I mean, I don't like to have bad years, you know, challenging, tough years, but in the tough years, the, the, the good winemakers stand out because a lot, of, a lot of people can make fairly decent wines in a really good year. You know, they got good grapes. It's hard to screw it up, you know, mm -hmm. but in a challenging year where you've got really challenges in the, with the weather or with a, f a frost or a, f a late freeze or whatever, you know the good wine, good, good winemakers really kind of rise to the top, and so a lot of times I feel like our wines stand out more in the bad years, because we make pretty good wines in the bad years, and a lot of them don't. And uh, whereas in the good years, like I say, everybody makes pretty good wines. 
<laughs> I don't like to have bad years, so. Well, <laughs> who does? <laughs> well, so that's an interesting philosophy of kind of covering all your bases by getting your food from a variety of places. And like you said, how how did you come about that? How how long did it take you to get to that realization of many sources for good fruit? I don't, I don't know. You know, so many people. It's it's I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of stubborn. So many people uh, talk about a state, mm -hmm. and it's like it really bugs me because. Uh, you can't always make the best wines from your own fruit. You got, you know, you can make better wines by getting good fruit from this area, this fruit, good fruit from this area. You know, it's the same way with uh, barrels. Where Steve experiments with yeast, different yeasts in different barrels. If we used grape from all one place, we had all the same kind of barrels, all the same kind of yeast. You know, your wines would probably not be as complex and as they, they not. not uh, they would be more boring than, than, than if you have a lot of different variety. Literally, I mean, we have 3,000 barrels in our winery, and literally none of them are, none of those barrels are exactly like, because we get different vineyards, different yeast, different barrels from different uh, areas, and also different age barrels and different toast levels on the barrels. And I, I just like the variety you get. And it's the same in the vineyard. You know, you get uh, grapes from different places and you're gonna have more variety and more, you're gonna have more choices than, than if you're just reliant on one source. So I kind of bridge both worlds here. <laughs> uh, as the, the, the founder, general manager in charge of, you know, has to market all this wine and, and sell it. I mean, that's a, a, a a good viewpoint that to have but again you know I have some pride in, in my product and he said you know yeah I could make the hundred the two hundred dollar bottles of Pinot Noir from select you know individual sites and things like that uh, but the world over talks about terroir you know it's the place so I mean looking at the the vineyard behind you I know that the fruit from that particular block is different than that block than that block and that one over there they each have their own unique character and so that's where the estate comes in. You know, if you have an estate and you've put in the effort, you know, I only want this kind of soil type with this, you know, elevation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're really trying to define the sense of place, the terroir, and use that as, as a marketing tool. And, you know, we do that with some of our fruit. We make special barrel select reserves and vineyard reserves as well. But the majority of it is, you know, the blend. Uh, the cuvee from all the various sites to to make an everyday wine that uh, you know because my philosophy is similar to what Thomas said earlier you know I would rather make wine that people are going to be able to drink every day and enjoy rather than wish they could you know have a bottle of wine and drink you know three hundred dollar bottle or a fifteen dollar bottle so uh, so I bridge both of the worlds there I'm trying to make the hundred dollar bottle but realize that I have to make a $15 bottle. So that affects my yeast choices, the barrel choices, how long we age things in, in, in barrels, you know, how many times we rack the wine, all those daily, weekly, monthly, annual, you know, and even four or five years in the future when we're planting vines, you know, what am I going to do with that fruit in five years once it, you know, becomes harvested? I have to plant. Do I have space in the winery? Do I need another tank? Do I need a bigger bottling line? You know, more warehouse space. All of that is are, are things that I'm thinking about, you know, even as he's talking, I'm already thinking, okay, you know, all right, tomorrow we're filtering, and I ordered more glass. I mean, uh, so for me, winemaking is a lot about logistics, risk management, continuing education. I mean, it's just a never-ending job. It just, you know, I go to sleep at night thinking about tomorrow and next week and, oh, what did, I forgot to do that yesterday kind of thing. And I go to sleep at night figuring out how to, how to sell it all. Yeah. yeah let's, let's talk about that for a second. What, what, is your, what is your sales or business philosophy when it comes to selling wine? Again, I mean, we're focused on, on Northwest. We're focused on particularly Oregon. Uh, well, we're one of the largest. If you just look at sales in Oregon, we're one of the largest, maybe second largest or something in Pinot Noir. But, um, you know, it's, it's very expensive to market your wines out of state, especially when you have, uh, when you're the size we are and you're trying to sell, uh, uh, you know, your 10 to $15 range. You know, if, you, if we were selling, if we were producing 5,000 cases instead of 75,000 or 80,000 cases, uh, and we were selling wines for $50 a bottle instead of $15 a bottle, yeah, you could you can afford to go out and sell them anywhere. But you know, again, we're 
we're uh, uh, margins on our wine are are a lot smaller than most wineries, and so you know we're looking at uh, um, you know we 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 think of every different possible way you can sell the wine. I mean, uh, as I said, we've been in growth for 30 years, yeah. and so now we're taking a breath, we're pausing, we're reevaluating. You know, do we want to continue to produce 100,000 cases of wine, or do we want to scale it back to 50 or 70, uh, sell all the wine, tick up our price, raise our margin. I mean, this is just universal business questions. It doesn't matter if it's toilet paper. You know, to use a Costco thing, you know, toilet paper and wine, you know, it's a commodity. So uh, we can make 50,000 run out, so we raise our price to, to smooth things out, and or we make it, more wine and, and keep our price. A lot of it, price. I think, isn't even uh, necessarily raising the price. It's maybe selling, uh, having a different um, demographic of how you're selling your wine. Like when you sell your wine through a three-tier distribution system, uh, by the time you pay, you know, the distributor takes his cut and the retailer takes his cut, and and the marketing cost of, 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 of selling it through that system, you're not making very much money. Whereas you, you know, we're developing a, a piece of property like, like this and we want to put a, a neat winery up on the hill and a bed and breakfast over there. Uh, we're, we've got event sites for weddings and reunions and concerts. Uh, it's more direct to more consumer. More direct to consumer type sales. And, you know, so, that, so we're really not selling our wines for any more money. We're just not, we're cutting out all the, um, you know, the, the uh, three tiers. <laughs> we don't really want to do that either because that's what makes our, our name, but we don't want to rely on that. Sure. You know, we, we'd rather, uh, you know, we'd rather uh, sell as much as we can direct through our retail um, operation. You know, um, we, uh, Steve's sister-in-law came up with the idea of this eclipse that we're having here in three weeks. Uh, we made a special label for the eclipse, and I think what we, we've shipped out 2,000 cases of it yesterday. You know, it's, and it's the same wine as our, our Pinot Noir, but it's got the eclipse on it, and boom, 2,000 cases. So um, a lot of it is, is marketing, you know, so anyway. Well, while we're on the topic of philosophies, and we've talked a little bit about this already, but I'm curious about your sort of winemaking philosophy and how you've developed it over the years. Uh, yeah, that caught me off guard. I was thinking about something else. <laughs> Always catch winemaking. Uh, yeah, uh, winemaking philosophy. Well, I mentioned, you know, I, I, I want to make wine that people can enjoy every day. So, one, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be fruity. It's got to be clean. It can't have any, you know, overt flaws to it. Uh, and again, that all starts in the vineyard. And up until recently, you know, I've had Jim, Tom's brother, is our vineyard manager, who is really particular. I mean, super, super critical of himself and provides me the best fruit. So it's really been hands off as far as uh, my input in the vineyard. He comes and he talks to me and says, you know, what do you think we need to be thinning or, you know, uh, timing of leaf pulling or, you know, various sprays. But Pretty much the fruit comes to me in a clean, perfect state with no leaves, no rot. Uh, you know, up until recently, most of our fruit's been hand-picked. And so you know, one of our efficiencies is that we haven't had the need for a sorting table because the fruit comes to us clean. And plus to, you know, do 1,500 tons of fruit and hand-sort it all before it goes into the crusher, it would be a monumental task. So it would have to be an automated uh, operation. But we've had really good, clean fruit, and I expect with uh, Antonio, his replacement, who's been with him for 15 years, it's going to be the same. Uh, but I'm taking more active role in the vineyard. I've been walking the vineyards and, you know, finding things and having conversations with uh, Antonio. And so, uh, so that's that's changed. So my philosophy is pretty much what I've just said before: to make a good, clean, consistent, quality fruit that people can enjoy, not wish they can enjoy. Yeah, we want the we want our consumer to be the person that goes to this, the supermarket or comes to the winery and buys a bottle of wine to go home and have with their with just a regular normal dinner instead of the person that comes there and says uh, it's our anniversary let's uh, get a bottle of the old health you know <laughs> or it's our birthday mm -hmm. yeah. you know so uh, it's got to be uh, every day one of the things that really pleases me is when I, I hear a comment from someone it's like well you know I tried XYZ brand or ABC brand and you know what you just can't beat Eola Hills, and they, you know, they come back and they 
you know, they, they had to learn their lesson. <laughs> you know, not to say that there's not a bunch of other great wine out there. I know there is. I, I, I enjoy wine made by others as well. But uh, I like it when people say, you know what, I tried someone else, but I came back to you. So There are a lot of wineries that are small. And when you're small, you, you can sell wine for just about whatever you want to sell it for. As you get bigger, you got to the other factors. Feed the machine. <laughs> and, and was that a conscious choice? To, you said, I'm talking about 30 years of growth. Was it, did you set out to grow big? No, not necessarily. We, we want to be, we're more interested in being good than being big. I don't care if we're, we're I don't think we're ever going to be the biggest Oregon winery. We're big in Oregon because we focus on Oregon. We have a lot of loyal customers in Oregon, but there's other wineries that sell a lot more wine than we do out of state, a lot more. Uh, that we are actually bigger than here. I mean, I tell people, you know, this winery is a lot bigger than us. They are, you know, because they think, you know, we're big because we sell so much here. But, um, you know, I, I don't really foresee changing that much. You know, I mean, we're, it's not we're going to ever turn away uh, 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 opportunities out of state or China or Europe or whatever. But uh, this is our base. I mean, all of our, practically all of our stockholders are Oregonians, um, you know, and uh, this is where we want to be, you know, always, this is our priority. You know, with this vineyard, uh, you know, my vision for this vineyard is it's, we're going to sell, we're going to be busy here selling a lot of wine because we're going to have a lot of concerts, a lot of weddings, we're going to have a lot of uh, functions here for people to come here, and uh, that's uh, that's my philosophy. More direct to consumer type stuff. That's a, that's how you get loyal customers. Really, I mean, you don't, you know, you go to the supermarket now. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of choices. How are they going to choose you? I mean, you got to have a good label, yes, but you mostly got to have other reasons for them to look for you. You know, I mean, you got to, you know, do a Sunday brunch or have a concert or uh, you know you know we do a lot of trips I mean we 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 do a lot of things to create our our customer base mm -hmm. and uh, and I think we have a real loyal customer base because of that so we, we they actually look for our wines because you can't find them if you aren't looking for them the stores there's so many wines to choose from now. So many. Not just Oregon, but Australia, Europe, California. Just a lot of choices for people. I don't know if this applies or not, and it's 27, two decades old now, but I came in in the transition in the wine industry when, back in 93, there still used to be what was called a brand set. You could go to the retail, go to Albertson, Fred Meyer, Safeway, and you could find Eola Hills, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, and they were all together as a brand. And so, you know, Eola Hills with five or seven uh, varieties of wine, you had a whole section of a shelf. You could find it. And it was easy to find. Oh, I'm looking for the Eola Hills. Oh, I love their Pinot. Why don't I try their Chardonnay? So it was, that worked out great. And then I don't know what happened. Somebody had the bright idea. Well, let's put all the Pinot Noirs together. Let's put all the Chardonnays together. I, I know the answer to it. <laughs> it's a big winery in California who helps we, control we the market and distribution. <laughs> yeah, uh, had the, the great idea. And so our one Chardonnay got buried in the sea of the 52 other Chardonnays from the big winery in California that you know has all these other brands and you think about it the big wineries were losing market share because of these all these different brands coming in and this was their way of fighting that trend of losing market share and that stuck and that's the way it continues to be so now you yeah. go and you get, go to the wall of Chardonnay and the wall of Pinot Noir uh, I did a tasting at uh, Redmond uh, Fred Meyer last year I don't remember how but they had they had four uh, 450 Chardonnays 450 faces of Chardonnay, Chardonnay. Yeah. I mean you know if you're a consumer you go in there I mean like, the wall how do you the great wall of Chardonnay <laughs> that's just Chardonnay right and they have more Pinots and more cabs they have 450 Chardonnays anyway tough it's tough to compete in that so you've got to do things again to create your customers so the growing of the grapes it's easy the making of the wine, it's easy. Relatively, the selling of the wine has become increasingly difficult. Yeah, that's the hard part. That's her job right there. <laughs> <laughs>
So, what uh, accomplishment are you proudest of here at Eagle Hills? What does what, what does he look back on and say, "I'm really proud of this"? Hmm. I'm proud of this guy. <laughs> I was just thinking of that. <laughs> I hope he mentions me, because <laughs> there's many, there's many things. Yeah. Just starting, you know, planting grapes in 1982 when there was. It, practically no acreage and people look at us as one of the old guys now you know and you know we didn't I didn't I never look at myself that way but when I go out to tastings now and I don't recognize anybody there I see maybe a Doyle Hinman or or somebody that's been around as long as I have you know and I think wow look at there's just there's so many new people I mean there's every time I go to a tasting in Oregon even in Oregon there's wineries from Oregon that I had never heard of so yeah, it's, it's like, who uh, is that? It's just, yeah. Where is that made? <laughs> yeah, who are they? Where they come from? But uh, anyway, no. It's uh, the thing I'm probably most proud of is that we've uh, uh, we've survived this long. <laughs> and um, you know, I used to work for my dad, and when he retired, he came to work for me, and he used to brag everybody. My son used to work for me, and now I work for him. <laughs> and I've got two of my kids active in the business and that's I'm real proud of that uh, I've had uh, all my kids have done things over the years mm -hmm. at the winery and, you know I remember when Kylie was about 10 years old she was doing all the labeling all the labels they all those crooked label no, <laughs> yeah. no. but uh, Kylie and her, her her sisters used to label all of our wine by hand and uh, anyway and they and her, her older sister is She's a designer, a, a, a graphic artist now. She's done a lot of uh, work for us, graphic work for us. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, happy that we've got a lot of long-term employees. I really, um, I, I've been blessed to work with my brother for all these years. Um, you know, we've got guys in the vineyard that have worked here for 20 years. And so, you know, I take a lot of pride in the fact Steve's been over 20 years, and his assistant, I think, has been here 20 years. 15. 15. This is going on 17, I think, yeah. actually. But, I mean, having guys, having people that work here for a long time, that, that means a lot to me. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I've been blessed to have so many great employees that have stayed here for such a long period of time. And I'd like to rephrase the question, and rather than uh, what am I most proud of, uh, more of a, some of the highlights, I guess. So June of last year, uh, we bottled a project that I started 20 years ago when I was the assistant winemaker. In 1996, uh, I had, uh, had uh, approached, or I had recently discovered port. So I went to the winemaker and I said, you know, can I make some port? I would like to make some port. And he, and he didn't like to tell me no, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but you know, he thought about it. He says, "Oh yeah, well, let's let's consider it." And uh, so that year in uh, October '96, we had gotten some Cabernet Sauvignon and took one ton. So at the time, we had a bunch of one, one and a half ton fermenters. So we took two bins of fruit, crushed it, and uh, let me make some port. Uh, we didn't let Tom know that we were doing that. Didn't even tell me. <laughs> so the idea was that I wanted to eventually build an inventory and blend a tawny port together, like a 10 or 20 year tawny port. So we were gonna do this every year and build an inventory. Well, I had, uh, in 1998, had left, got hired to be the head winemaker at a winery in Southern Oregon. And so those barrels, when I came back in January of 2000, were still there. And one of the first things I did was to go taste all the wines and barrels and tank and find out where they were after harvest and you know to make sure everything was okay and I'd come across these barrels that had a port that had been in there for four years and I said wow this is really good so I was excited and I went upstairs and I handed some to Tom and he always goes what is it and I never tell him because I don't want to bias you know I said just smell it taste it and tell me what you think oh well, this was really great and I go well this is a Cabernet Sauvignon port from 1996 and he goes it's like four years old and the wheels were turning, and, and so if I'm in his head and speaking, he's like, we're not making any money on this. We're not selling this. It's just sitting in, in inventory doing nothing. We need to be selling it. And I was like, ah, 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 it still has, you know, 16 more years to go, I'm thinking inside my head. So the compromise was to take half of the volume. I had four barrels. So we took two barrels, we bottled it as a late bottle vintage port, and 
put it in a half-size bottle and we're selling it for 30 bucks a bottle in the tasting room and it sold out in about seven months. All right, of wine, we need more wine. And go, well, it hasn't been four years for the next vintage, the 97, which is also still hiding out in the, the wine. So that started our, our port in 2000, uh, bottling up late bottle vintage port. And so we went from four barrels to now I'm making 16 barrels of port each year. And we're still bottling half or three quarters of it. And in 1996, uh, we started that project. June of last year, I bottled the last barrel of 96 as a Colheta. So that one barrel of port had been sitting there for 19 years and eight months. Uh, so it's a 20-year oh, tawny port, but a single barrel, so it's in Portuguese tradition, a colheita. So that's a that's a, a highlight. And I've always wanted to make sparkling wine. I wanted to make sparkling wine back as an assistant winemaker too. Well, we took a a wine trip. We do European trips, you know, travel with the Ola Hills, and we take people to Europe. And one of our trips, as a pre-trip, we took a group to Epernay in Champagne. Uh, area and Tom's wife Debbie's like oh I really love champagne this is so great and she asked you know, Tom you think Steve can make this and I heard her say that and I was just waiting for it and Tom looks at me and goes think you can make this and I go yes please 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 I've only been asking to do this for a long time so he says yeah go ahead so as soon as we got back I'm talking to Jim say I'd like some Chardonnay from this block of the vineyard and this block of the vineyard you know don't thin it don't do this we're going to pick it at this bricks and uh, so we I've made some sparkling wine, some uh, Pinot Noir Rosé and uh, Chardonnay. So that's really good. Last year, so it's 2016. We it's uh, in in tirage at the moment, so we have the backup following that. Uh, and I think uh, Kylie, our sales manager, has uh, uh, been shopping it around, and we've got a, a retailer who's interested in it, and they think they can move like 500 cases of it a year. So we're going to put it into distribution here, probably, hopefully this year. That's really cool. Cry port story. I haven't heard one like that before. That was, that's a pretty awesome story. You know, when he when he started a little add add on to that is uh, some when when he bottled some in '97 or 2000 from the 1996 from the '96 vintage, but it was '96 port. Left most of it or half of it in the barrel, the half of the bottles. <clears throat> Somebody came to the winery. It was Jack. Uh, came to the winery uh, earlier this year, and he had a bottle of the 96 port. The original LBV. <laughs> in 2000. And so, and then we had the 96 Coheta that was in barrel for 20 years. So we had the two to try side by side. It was pretty interesting. They were both really good. But it was really, really interesting to see how uh, wine aged in the barrel bottle, versus, versus under glass. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, and you've already given some answer to this, but I'm curious, in addition to just pure size, what are some of the other changes in the industry you've seen? I mean, you've seen pretty much the whole industry grow up in your time here, and you've seen a big chunk of it too, Steve, so what are the biggest changes, in addition to just purely growth, that you've noticed in the industry? Hmm. Well, you know, Oregon's on the map now. I mean, people know about Oregon, even in Europe and China and every place else. Um, it's not, it's not a Oregon's not a, a secret anymore, or it's not a local uh, phenomenon. It's 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 a world-renowned uh, place to grow grapes, and that's what's made it possible for 700 wineries to be here <laughs> instead of 30 or 40. <laughs> but uh, that's probably been the biggest. That's the biggest change. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's been the biggest biggest thing. It's and it's. I think it it's only going to get. Uh, more, you know. Well, it already has. Tourism, I mean, we have tourists are coming here. You know, part a lot of the reason I think uh, the eclipse is a big deal, but a lot of them is it's it's wine related. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of vineyards and wineries are having big uh, eclipse events, and uh, um, that's going to massively. I mean, we're supposed yeah. to have a million plus people yeah. arrive in yeah. Oregon. Yeah. We're going to have 960 people here for the weekend. You know, we have concerts each night. Uh, so that's 960 people. We have a contingent from California, uh, from a big corporation down there, have hired several buses and they have a spot designated for themselves. So we have a contingent that's coming over from China, uh, a when group of 50 people, and they're all going to drink wine. They're going to remember Yola Hills. They're going to remember Willamette Valley, Oregon, uh, and they're going to take that home. 
and hopefully, you know, ask for Oregon Pinot Noir and hopefully Eola Hills Pinot Noir as well. <laughs> but like Tom said, there is many wineries that are doing that. My wife works at another winery in the tasting room, and they're doing an event in their vineyard and a breakfast just the day of the event. So uh, that's that's large. You know, they're doing an event over in Madras. It's pale. I mean, what we're doing pales in comparison with what they're doing over there. They're expecting hundreds of thousands of people. What's well, a 500 acre ranch and this is going to be a big party <laughs> for the eclipse. Amazing. So changes we're featuring our eclipse wine. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Changes that I've seen. Uh, for me, it's more of the frog in the pot kind of thing. You know, I, I don't. I agree with Tom that Oregon has become even more recognized the, the world over, uh, and, and people are coming here from around the world to make wine. I mean, there's new investors from France that are buying vineyard properties, investing in wineries, uh, you know, buying wineries. Kendall Jackson. Kendall Jackson, even Gallo is now up here planting grapes, uh, you know, thousand acre parcels of grapes. Uh, and while some people are afraid of that, I look at it as, as you know, an opportunity for us to help ride on their marketing dollars. So if Kendall Jackson is going to make you know, a million cases of Oregon Pinot Noir, they're going to have to sell it somewhere. And they're going to promote Oregon wine at Valley Pinot Noir, and that's just going to help us sell more wine. They're running into more and more problems, I think, too, in California. The, the, the drought situation down there has been tough. and. And uh, I think they see the land prices up here being uh, way more affordable than what they can do down there. And our weather is more predictable. And I think that's another reason why they're moving north. Well, you started to say this earlier, but I'm curious, in addition to what you've seen change, what do you see in the future? What does the next 10, 20 years of Oregon wine look like? I'll be retired by then, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just went to uh, Scott Burns. Uh, Geologist, PhD, or, or you know, Portland State University. Yeah, I just had a little, went to his little seminar last night, and uh, people were asking some questions. So then I asked a, a leading question, and they were, the question was, what do you see in Oregon in the next five to ten years? And so I asked the question about uh, north-facing slopes. So in the Willamette Valley, we tend to plant on south, either east or west-facing slopes, depending on if you want the morning sun or afternoon sun, but they all face south to get the more sun. Well, if you believe in climate change and it's getting warmer and drier, I know in the Umpqua Valley, um, Pinot Noir is planted on more north-facing slopes. In some cases, there's a lot of bench land down there too, but if you want to plant a cool climate grape and you're planting on a south-facing slope in a warm climate like the Umpqua, it doesn't produce the best fruit. So you can produce on a north-facing slope. When I see just our surrounding property, there's a lot of north facing slopes here coming off the Yola Hills that could easily be turned into vineyards if the climate continues to change and get warmer. So we could easily, you know, triple the <laughs> the grape production in the next 10 to 15 years here Pretty in much the Eola Hills. Plants on North Slope now because it's the traditional mm -hmm. South Slope, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of great our best our best wine consistently is planted on North Slope. And it's because it ripens a little, uh, little behind. It's the soil, the rootstock, and the clone too. Yeah, <laughs> and the crop load really a has a. Maybe it'd be better if it was on the south slope, but it's, but it is on the north slope. We don't have much north slope here. I mean, most of it is kind of south and west, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. it just depends on what you're, what you're planning too. You know, so you know if you if you look at things that ripen a month earlier than other things, then. It, you should, you could plant them on different slopes and have them more, um, you know, they ripen more uniformly. What about the size of the industry? How big is it going to get? It doesn't show too much signs of slowing down right now. It just, uh, I, I, I keep thinking, you know, it, that it's going to, but it, you know, I don't know. We, Steve and I just got back from France. We were over there on some business and. You know, when you go to some of their bottling lines and you see a, about, what, a couple thousand bottles a minute coming out of there, yeah. and you think, who's going to drink all this wine? But we were in the Long Duck and we visited Unbelievable. A, a factory. Let's just call it, it's a, it's a bottling facility. And, you know, tanker trucks roll in, you know, from cooperatives or, you know, private wineries, and they just go to a central bottling location. There was one bottling line that had 90 filler heads. 
and that thing went around in less, well, like 15 seconds, it did one revolution. So 90 bottles. Uh, and out in the parking lot, I was looking at the stacks and I was counting them and I went, okay, Tom, from here, not everything over there, but just from here out to there, that is a million bottles. That's a one year's production. That was a two days bottling run for this facility. Yeah. You know, it takes me yeah. seven months to do a bottle, <laughs> a million bottles with my 16 head filler. And you know, it hasn't, it, you know, the consumption and the wine, uh, it, it's not, it's not here like it is in Europe. I mean, you go, you go to, <laughs> you're walking down the street in Paris or any place there and at lunch, I mean, everybody's got a bottle of wine on their table at lunch. And it, that has that has not hit here. But if it ever did hit here, uh, you know, you know, we, we need to plant more grapes. <laughs> well, everyone's talking about China. That uh, what's flying under the radar too is is India. The the wine consumption in India has increased quite tremendously. Uh, the issues there are, are the climate for finished bottled wine and storage and not having it go bad. <laughs> uh, so you think of uh, Madeira and Port and India Pale Ale. <laughs> you know, there's things you got to do to the wine or uh, the beer to make them last in India. And I don't know if that those are going to happen here. And I'm kind of digressing. But you ask, you know, what's the potential for growth if those markets eventually open up? I mean, the per capita consumption in China is going up. So if you've got a billion people and if you go up a quarter of 1%, I mean, that could whoop, suck up all of our production and everyone else's in Oregon. There's only uh, so just many that, places you know, around the world that, that, are, that have the climates to grow good grapes. <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of vineyards in a lot of places, but they're not, you know, maybe they don't produce as high quality fruit as, as others do. So there's, only, there's a finite amount of places to really produce really premium wines but there's more and more and more people being added to the consumer base all the time and the and the people that are are becoming attuned and educated to wine increasing all the time so i think uh, we're not going to be uh, taking any grapes out of production anytime <laughs> soon yeah <laughs> So what about more specifically, uh, what is the future for Yola Hills? For me, um, again, I'm, I'm uh, kind of at the end of my career. I, I plan on working a few more years maybe and then passing the reins over maybe this guy and, and uh, the next generation. Mm -hmm. But I, my, my goal is to see this project here finished. That's my goal. I mean, I'd like to get the vineyards finished, uh, and get our facilities done out here. We don't have any really facilities. We're starting to do things out here, but we could do a lot more if we had the facilities out here. The winery, the bed and breakfast, the event facility. So that's, that's, that's my goal over the next few years. Uh, for me, I'd like to see us plateau uh, at a certain level of production and then really focus on our on our marketing our price point and figure out ways to as we've done in the past continue to turn over product and then be able to get to a point where like you know we're running out of wine uh, so then we can either produce more or you know play more with the pricing and our margin uh, and some of that ties in with the direct to consumer so development of this property making a, a destination where people will come to you and then have a great experience with Eola Hills, Willamette Valley, Oregon, uh, and ask for our wine, you know, and then spread that word. Oh, I visited this great place in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. It's Pinot Noir, Eola Hills, and hopefully they'll start asking for it. And so either we raise our prices or we continue to grow and, and make more wine. But I think we need to take that pause and, you know, critique where we are. We've been growing for 30 years, so let's, uh, let's, uh, tweak it, make it profitable for everyone. So the last actual question I have for each of you, and I like, I'm interested in both of your answers to this, is what advice would you give someone today who wanted to join the wine industry? Uh, be prepared <laughs> to work a lot. Uh, and just know that uh, weekends are usually your busiest time. A lot of times evenings, 
So it better be a, a passion and a, a something that you like as a lifestyle. Um, it, it's a lot of work, but it's a rewarding work. And uh, but um, you know, the uh, there's so many people that um, like to like the thought of living on a vineyard or looking at the grapes, but. Um, in, if they want to make money at it, they need to be uh, all in, you know. Yeah, growing grapes, uh, to go back to the first phase of it, you have to grow the grapes if, if that's your thing, if you're not just a winery. And I, I always tell people, you know, expect to never take a vacation except, you know, maybe in January <laughs> because you have to be here to do the pruning and then the stuffing in the canes, and then you gotta spray every week or every other week all through, and then there's harvest, and then after harvest there's the cleanup. So pretty much your only month off is the month of January. You know, you're busy 11 months of the year growing your grapes. Unless you have a lot of money and you can pay for people to... to yeah, a lot of people, some people in the industry to, to farm that, to, to farm for you. <laughs> so that's that's uh, phase one, and then uh, uh, to go right back into what Tom says, it's, it's for me, winemaking, you know, people, oh, how is it? And I go, well, you know, it's a hobby. I just happen to get paid to do it. And if I could learn how to get paid to go fishing, but not have to take other people with me, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it, it is, it's a hobby, it's a way of life. And like Tom says, you know, weekends. We were here on Sunday, you know, emergency rush bottling or labeling some wine for an order that was to go out. Uh, uh, harvest, and it's seven days a week, 16 hours plus a day for the six weeks, uh, making it happen, so yeah. It's a way of life. It's a way of life. You know, you, know. you know what? We've gotten pretty good here, though, at incorporating fun things into our way of life. You know, we, Steve and I host a trip every year to Europe. We take, last year, what did we take? 90 people? 96 people. 90, some people. To For three Croatia. weeks to we Croatia go, we, and we to northern Italy. Countries. And that's, it's, it's business, but it's kind of like a, a, a fun break from what we normally do. We host, we do a lot of concerts and we do bike rides. And so it's like I get we paid to go on a European vacation and take 50 or 90 of my friends with me. But we've learned to try to incorporate uh, fun things into our business. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's been, I think that's been what's kind of kept us. Well, it shows, like you said, with the, with the longevity of your work, well, your workers here, it definitely shows that you're doing doing something right. So. Either that or they can't find other jobs. <laughs> uh, well, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Anything I forgot to ask that I should have? Any final thoughts? Either of you? Just need to have, have people drink more Eola Hills wine, that's all. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time and answering our questions. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.